It's time that you know your rights, period. Pap smears. I don't know about you, but when I hear that term, I immediately think of discomfort. And did you know that South Asian women have been reported to be less likely to get pap smears? This is according to a couple of UK-based studies that happened in the early 2000s. But this screening method is crucial for cervical cancer. In honor of January being Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, Ishani and I will be talking all things about pap smears, HPV, and cervical cancer. And yeah, we know it's February, but would it be brown woman health if it weren't on Daisy Standard Time? For this episode, we invited Dr. Vedahi Muzumdar, a third-year OBGYN resident based in the best city ever, New York. Dr. Vedahi was also on season two, so definitely check out her episode on Oncofertility. You can find her on Twitter at V-E-E-M-U-J. Thank you for having me. So January is, you know, we have different, we have different months for bringing awareness about different, um, specifically different cancers, GYN cancers. So January is dedicated to cervical cancer, which is a great time to talk about both prevention and screening and some of the things that we can do to prevent cervical cancer in the future. According to the World Health Organization, cervical cancer is the fourth most common cancer in females. So what exactly is it? Sure. So I think when we talk about cervical cancer, we have to really think about the anatomy, which you know is not something that a lot of people may know about or may think about on a daily basis. But the cervix is the bottom part of the uterus. Um, it's at the back of the vagina. And the best way that I like to explain it, because a lot of people are more used to thinking about pregnancy, is that's the part we talk about dilating when someone is in labor. So your cervix dilates, it becomes 10 centimeters, and you're able to then, you know, push and go through the labor process. So that is the part that is affected in cervical cancer. And cancer is just any abnormal growth of cells. So when the normal cells of the cervix become abnormal, very simply, that leads to cervical cancer. So before we got more into a deeper dive about screening for cervical cancer via pap smears, we wanted to talk a little bit about preventing cervical cancer and how we can go about not getting it. Um, This is the only GYN cancer that we have a vaccine against. So the HPV vaccine protects against um, getting those abnormal cells and eventually getting to the point where you have cervical cancer. Let's backtrack a little bit. What even is HPV? Well, the human papillomavirus is one of the most common sexually transmitted infections. According to the CDC, there were about 43 million HPV infections in 2018, where many of these people were in their late teens and early 20s. There are many different types of HPV as well, and they can cause different types of health problems. But the question is, what does that even have to do with cervical cancer? The reason being that there's two types of Um, human papillomaviruses, or HPV, 16 and 18, which are responsible for about 50% of the high-grade cervical precancers that we see. So HPV is sexually transmitted. It's skin-to-skin contact. It can be transmitted through oral sex, anal sex, um, penile, vaginal. Any, Any sexual contact is essentially putting you at risk for getting HPV. 
So because HPV we know leads to cervical cancer, this vaccine is basically to stop it from happening in the first place. Um, in terms of you know when you can get vaccinated, so an ideal time is to obviously vaccinate before you're sexually active. Right now, HPV is recommended for anyone between the ages of nine um, to the age of 45, which is a newer thing. Before it was the ages of nine to 26. So now they've even upped that age range, which is really great because if you you know were missed in the vaccination pool as a, a teenager or as a young adult, you can still get vaccinated later in life. So basically, you know, being vaccinated is the biggest thing that is going to help you from getting cervical cancer. What are some signs and symptoms of cervical cancer and what are some risk factors? When you talk about, you know, let's say you do have some abnormal cells and you are, you know, at risk for cerv cervical cancer, some of the symptoms that you should look out for, unfortunately, is that there can be no symptoms um, for certain people. If you have any vaginal bleeding that's abnormal, so for us, that means you know bleeding between your periods, bleeding that's heavier than usual, or a change in your bleeding pattern. Um, if you're having vaginal bleeding after intercourse, or if you notice a vaginal discharge that is different from usual or has an odor that's persistent. So anyone with a cervix, which is that bottom part of the uterus, is at risk for cervical cancer. So this is important when we talk about um, the transgender community as well, because they still um, have to get exams, specifically pap smears and HPV testing when you're at a certain age. Another big factor that I don't think a lot of people think about is smoking. Um, that definitely can weaken the immune system and lead to persistent infections with HPV, which um, we've discussed can cause cervical cancer. So this is really important just because the HPV vaccine has really helped in decreasing our rates of cervical cancer, but around the world, cervical cancer is the fourth most common cancer. And there's about, in 2020, there was 600,000 new cases and 340,000 deaths by cervical cancer. In the U.S., that number is low, but as of January of this year, the American Cancer Society had estimated that there was 14,000 new cases of invasive cervical cancer and that around 4,000 women will die in the U.S. with cervical cancer annually. Is there any connection with um, cervical cancer and the South Asian subcontinent, like either genetically, are the rates higher? Um, is, is cervical cancer genetic? Um, and another question is what maybe some fact, if, if the rates are different, what may be like some of the factors for that? So cervical cancer, um, there's obviously like genetic predispositions, but it's not one of those things that we think about with genetics the way we think about breast and ovarian cancers. Um, in terms of the South Asian like community, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's around the world, um, there are obvious disparities in screening and access to care and that make it more difficult for certain populations to get care um, in, in a timely manner. But in terms of 
even in terms of like high socioeconomic status South Asian women, um, there's a couple of studies that were done in the United Kingdom in 2018 um, that show that the rates of pap smears were lower than national recommendations. The factors that they cited included marital status um, and stigma associated with getting both pap smears, going to the gynecologist, um, and then coming back for care. In terms of the U.S., I don't know of any like recent studies that specifically talks about the South Asian population. Um, There was a study that came out in November in JAMA Oncology that looked at the rate of cervical cancer among women that were living in New York City neighborhoods. In that study, they basically found that neighborhoods that were populated predominantly by Black and Hispanic residents had two times higher um, rates of cervical cancer than um, New Yorkers who live in the highest socioeconomic neighborhoods in the city, which are largely white. So there's there's obviously a lot of structural barriers that play into this, but um, essentially a lot of it refers to access to care and how we can get people plugged into screenings and then keep them coming back for their screenings at every interval. You mentioned that people need to keep coming back to get cervical screenings. So what exactly are cervical screenings and what does that schedule look like? Like how often do people need to go for these screenings? And do people just need pap smears or do they also need HPV screenings? Can you just break it down a little bit for us? Um, so this has been kind of a ongoing process. There are definitely, I would say, like people who are my mother's generation or even like, you know, people who are currently in their 40s, 50s, who will say that they used to get pap smears every year. The current guidelines tell us that the best way to prevent cervical cancer, obviously, is through the HPV vaccine, but you should get screening. So that screening is a pap smear Um, and HPV testing when you turn a certain age. So regardless of sexual activity, you should get a pap smear at the age of 21. And that's it. That's where they will take scrape off some of the cells, we'll look at them and make sure that there's nothing abnormal um, in the specimen that they've taken. When you turn 30, it changes in that we want you to get a pap smear and then also an HPV test at the same time. The reason being is that before the age of 30, if you do contract HPV, it's most likely to clear and it's not going to be a persistent infection. There are some caveats to you know patients who are immunocompromised or have other um, comorbidities, but in general, um, if we were to test anyone but below the age of 30 for HPV, it's going to maybe be positive, and then we're going to do unnecessary interventions for them. So 21 pap smear. And I just want to point out here that a lot of my patients think that they have gotten a pap smear just because they had a vaginal exam or because a speculum was placed inside for whatever reason. And so I think that's really important to bring up too, to know, you know, what it means to actually get a pap smear. Um, 
in places around the world where there's centralized databases because they have universal health care, it's much easier to keep track of people and, you know, actually look at their old pap smears, look at that data here. I mean, I can just talk about myself because I've moved for med school and training and all these things. I haven't lived anywhere longer than four years for a large chunk of my adult life. So imagine how hard that would be to track as a physician to see when my last pap smear was, what the actual results were, when I need my next one. Um, so that's really that's important to talk about with your patients and just for people to know in general, it's really good to have um, your results, especially if you're moving around. Um, the one thing I'll mention in addition to that is that in 2019, the guidelines changed a little bit um, in how we deal with abnormal cells that we find, but that's really beyond the scope of you know what we're talking about today. Um, the reason I'm mentioning it is because we don't have this universal database, you know, I think we end up doing pap smears a lot more that aren't based off of the actual guidelines. So technically you should be getting a pap smear from the age of 21 to 30 every three years, as long as, long as it's normal. From 30 onwards, um, you should be getting a pap smear plus the HPV test every five years, unless obviously there's an abnormality and you need further screening or further intervention. Um, and then there's also the guidelines for women who are above the age of 65, which we don't often think about, is that you know as long as their pap smears and HPV testing was normal for the last three times that they got it, they really don't need to get any further screening. We know that that's not always true in all of our populations, especially um, women of color, especially black women. Um, there have been some studies that have looked at the benefits of continuing screening for high-risk populations past uh, the age of 65. So screening, the screening guidelines have changed a lot, even in the last like 10, 15 years. But I think overall, we're trying to do the best we can at risk reduction without um, without causing women to undergo unnecessary procedures at a younger age. So something I've noticed as someone who's you know around like the age of 21 and a lot of my friends are starting to get their first pap smears and talking a little bit about it. Um, I know a common hesitation I've seen is um, they look uncomfortable. There was a TikTok mm -hmm. waiting where um, this girl like recorded her reaction. And I remember watching that being like, oh, like, I don't know if I'd want to go through that. And so I guess for people who have those certain hesitations of like fear or like really just don't know what to expect with that, what sort of ways can you like better prepare um, for past years? I feel like TikTok is not the place, uh, the resource. Right. <laughs> So th this is a great question. I think it's really important, A, to find someone that you feel comfortable with. Um, I mean, I think we've all had experiences with gynecologists that have been good, bad, in between. And what I can tell you that I do, especially with you know younger, younger women um, or patients who are coming in, we have like a large um, transgender clinic as well. So there's added issues that come along with doing screening tests for um, 
that population as well. But the biggest thing is just to like talk through everything. It's, it's weird. No one wants to undergo a pap smear, a vaginal exam. Those are weird things to do. It's not normal to have a metal object placed inside of your body at the doctor's office, right? But in an effort to normalize it, especially if you've never had one before, um, you know, you can, what I like to do is I always start with, if it's a patient who's never been sexually active, start with the smallest speculum you have. I like to show patients what it looks like. Um, you know, some people don't want to know what it looks like, and that's fine too. Um, you know, and you want to do everything. I mean, speculums are really cold. Sometimes they're not because we put them in warmers and it kind of helps with everything, but you want to kind of just place it on the skin before you do anything to give people the idea of what it feels like. And then you just want to go very slowly and talk through what you're doing. I just like to talk through exactly what I'm doing. I'm putting this in. Now I'm going to clean this off. All the steps so that you, in, an, in a moment where you're like, I have no control, you feel like you are in control and you actually are, right? Because it's, it's your body. We can stop at any time. So I think those are some of the things that I say to people when they're hesitant about going through this because I just think it's so important to get this screening. Um, you know, if we had this kind of screening or this kind of like preventative measures for any of our other cancers, it would be absolutely amazing. But we don't, but we do have it for cervical cancer. So, I mean, that's that's kind of my spiel when I talk to people. So going off on a tangent here, um, from what I understand, um, it can take months or even years after um, an HPV exposure for the symptoms to develop or even for the virus to be detected in screenings. So what does a recent diagnosis of HPV mean for people that are in a relationship? Like, does that necessarily mean that, you know, someone has been unfaithful? I feel like this is something important to talk about to kind of you know, eliminate those misconceptions that just because you're di- you're diagnosed with HPV, that doesn't mean someone has recently been unfaithful. It can take years for it to develop. Yeah, this is one of those like interesting questions because I'm sure it comes up in conversation, um, especially if you're in a relationship. The only way you would know that you had HPV is when we do that HPV um, screening when you're 30 um, with the the pap smear. We don't routinely screen for HPV. It's not something like if you went to a clinic and you said, I wanted STI testing, it's not something that would be included on your panel of tests. Um, the way that like gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV, syphilis, those things are included. Um, and so, you know, for whatever reason, if you find out you have HPV, um, it you're right. It, it doesn't mean there's no way of knowing like when you got that. There's no way of knowing who gave it to you. Basically, and this is something my mentor used to say in med school. She's a pediatrician and she you know, is used to talking to um, kids and especially their parents about HPV vaccination um, and what that means. And her whole thing was if you ever want to have a child, or if you ever want to have any type of sexual relationship, it's in the realm of possibility that you're going to get HPV. So you might as well just be vaccinated against it. You know, I think what it means for a relationship, it's, 
I hate to say it this way, but it's kind of neither here nor there because there's there's really no way of getting rid of it, right? It's something that either will go away on its own. There's certain things that you can do if you're smoking, you know, you st- can stop smoking. Um, sometimes we do tell patients to take turmeric, um, eat a lot of leafy greens. Those are some things that are just to better boost your immune system so that it can fight the virus and you can get rid of it. Um, but it, it's kind of one of those things that lives in this like middle ground because it's not the same as saying, oh, I have chlamydia, let me take this medication and get rid of it. Um, but it's it's definitely something that is sexually transmitted. So I, that can be a point of contention or a point of discussion in relationships. Since this virus is um, sexually transmitted, is there any evidence linking HPV with, let's say, cancers of the anus or vulva, vagina, and you know, other genital Yeah. So um, HPV has been shown to lead to penile cancers. Um, The big thing that that we're talking about now is um, the relationship of HPV with head and neck cancers. Um, So that's been really important because, and this is just my personal take on this, but I remember when Gardasil was introduced um, to like the public. I, I was, I think, 17 or 18 years old. I was in high school and it was positioned as this vaccine for, for girls. Um, and I, you know, I personally think that we kind of missed the mark where we should have, va- we should have um, instead marketed it as more of a cancer vaccine for men and women. Um, because even now you'll find that parents of boys um, are, they're a little bit more hesitant, or at least we found that in some of the more qualitative studies we've done because they don't think that it applies to them. But anyone can get head and neck cancer. You don't have, you know, it doesn't matter what um, sex you are. So that's definitely something that's been really important in getting out in the last couple of years. But I wish that we had done that sooner so that Gardasil could have been, um, picked up more heavily than it was. So Gardasil is a vaccine that is used to prevent the cancer of the anus, abnormal tissue growth of the anus, genital warts, or certain head and neck cancers. It's also used to prevent the cancer of the cervix, vagina, vulva, and abnormal tissue growth in these areas in women that can lead to cancer. So these conditions are commonly caused by certain types of HPV as well. And because it's a newer vaccine, and we all know a lot about vaccine hesitancy because of like COVID-19 and other recent events, I had to ask, is there a lot of vaccine hesitancy that surrounds Gardasil? And how does Dr. Vedahi navigate that sort of hesitancy with the vaccine? You know, vaccine hesitancy, I think we can talk about that in general, especially in today's world. But um in terms of the HPV vaccine, I having you know having trained in the South, um, I think from then this is just this is our experience and this is like what um, a colleague and I have found through our own research. So I'm not speaking to um, the literature in general, but what we've what we really found is that once you spoke to parents about this being a cancer vaccine, that was a way of making it more palatable, um, especially even talking about it in health classes and in school systems where sex ed is not as prevalent. Um, and that that really helped because everyone, you know, we 
I like to compare this to the hepatitis B vaccine. Hep B is also sexually transmitted, but I don't think anyone thinks of it that way because it's just something that you get when you're a baby and you kind of move on, you know, because it's for hepatitis B. You don't want to get cancer from it. And I wish we had done that with HPV. We didn't, but that has been my way of kind of getting people on board by saying this is to me, the same as hepatitis B. If you want to protect yourself from getting cancer, whether it's cervical cancer, whether it's head and neck cancer, penile cancer, whatever, um, this is your best shot of doing that. And I think that makes more sense to people. The minute you start saying this is a cancer for sexually transmitted diseases, you know, I think that puts people off because it's like, why is my nine-year-old getting that? Like, what is that going to do? And in terms of studies looking at like sexual activity, they're all, you know, I mean, it's the same as when we talk about doing sex ed or um, teaching kids about contraception. Is that making them more likely to have sex? The answer is no. So giving someone the HPV vaccine is not going to make them more likely to have sex. It's just going to protect them when they do. Um, So, I mean, that's what I use in my like clinic and my daily practice when I talk about it. Um, And there's even been a couple of studies that have shown that it's beneficial to give the HPV vaccine even after patients have developed abnormal cells in the cervix. That's super interesting. And I think that's a really good way of putting the vaccine as well. I never thought of it that way, but I'm like... I can see why that's a lot more effective as well. So there you have it. That was a breakdown of Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Thank you, Dr. Videhi, for sharing these insights with us. Check out her Twitter at at B-E-E-M-U-J. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. This was episode one of season three, and we have lots of exciting conversations queued up for you these next couple of months. If you haven't done so, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Links in the description. See you next time.